Hey, veterans. Welcome to the VA Claims Insider Podcast. We are veterans helping veterans get the VA disability rating and compensation you deserve. I'm your host, Air Force Service Disabled Veteran Brian Reese, and each week we share VA disability claim tips, tricks, strategies, and lessons learned to help you win, service connect, and get rated at the appropriate level, even if you've already filed or been denied. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. All right, welcome veterans. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today we're going to be covering how to how to the importance of and then how to file an intent to file. I'm joined here by my my battle buddy Natalie. Good morning. And I'm Sean. So we're going to do a quick uniform inspection. Everyone good to go? You got pen and paper, a computer will suffice. All right, we're we're good to go. Um all right, so I we, we, you have a chat box in the lower right hand corner. I'd like to, to sound off with your, your branch and your years of service. Uh, so for me, Army, 2012 through present. And for me, Navy, 2012 through 2015. Also currently residing in Reno, Nevada. All right. We got, we got John Tremble, Airborne. And for anyone else that didn't catch that, we're, we're sounding off with our branch and our years of service. You, you got the comment box in the lower right-hand corner. Please sound off and fill it out. I'd like to know where, where you're all from and, and what you did. All right, we got some Vietnam vets in the house. 24 years, thank you for your service. Hua. All right, we got a lot of army in the house. Hua. 85 to 98 infantry. All right, we got some Air Force with us. Very nice. All right, well, we're going to kick it off here in just a minute. So I'll, I'll turn this over to uh, to Natalie in just a second. But just for a quick outline, so you're all tracking what, what what's going to go down. Um, we're we're going to discuss what is an intent to file. What is it? Uh, we're going to talk how to submit the different options that are available. We're going to discuss the the importance of an intent to file, and then I'll, I'm going to walk you through how how to manually file and intent to file online. And then lastly, followed up with some Q&A. So you can ask us any questions that you have and, and we'll address them as best we can. So with that, uh, Natalie, I'll, I'll turn the floor over to you. Awesome, awesome. Good morning, everyone. So first uh, question here is what is an intent to file? Um, best way I can say that. So veterans and survivors can use the intent to file process if they need additional time to gather support for their claim. Um, the intent to file process can be used for VA compensation and pension benefits. This includes survivors, pension and dependency and indem indemnity compensation. Um, the process uh, allows you to, um, it allows you more time to collect information to support your claim. So it also protects the earliest possible effective date um, for any benefits resulting from your claim. The date the VA receives your intent to file will uh, will be protected as your effective date. However, the correct application form must be submitted within one year. So basically, um, you're going to, when you put in that intent to file, is saving that date 
uh, for a year. Um, and it, get, it gives you enough time to gather as much evidence as you need if you still need to go to other doctor's appointments or um, get an IMO or a Nexus or anything like that. Um, you're saving that date in order for, you know, say that it's a year out, you're able to receive back pay um, through the VA. Um, so an intent to file must contain a few things. Um, one is enough personal information to identify the veteran. Um, it also needs to contain the general the general benefit that you're seeking, and it needs to have your your representative signature. And this is basically if you're putting in a uh, an actual paper document. So there are three ways to submit an intent to file. Um, one is online and electronically, and so to do that, you'll go through va.gov, which uh, Coach Sean is going to be showing you a little bit later on. You will uh, initiate the claim, uh, complete the personal information page, and then hit save to establish your effective date. Um, this is all one streamlined process now. Uh, it used to be on ebenefits.com, but I'm uh, sorry, ebenefits.gov, but, um, but it's now been moved over to the new va.gov site. We have multiple options to do the intent to file. Uh, so you can call the VA at 1-800-827-1000. That, that's usually the easiest way to do it, uh, especially if you're on the move, on the fly, or at work. It's a great, great way. Uh, we also have the manual form that you can you can mail to the VA, The as Natalie had mentioned, the 21-0966, and you can mail that to their claims intake center in Janesville, Wisconsin. And then the last option is to go through and do it do it manually. And this is the option that I would recommend um, because you, it, it's formally logged in the system. It's something that you can track and you can see and, and you, you'll notice it every time you go through and ultimately file your application. It saves the date. Everything is done electronically. You're not necessarily trusting on or relying on somebody else to, to do that for you. Uh, so it's usually the most effective way. And you do that by logging into va.gov. You go to initiate a claim. And then you go through uh, where it says, let's get started, and, and you fill it out. And we'll walk through it in, in, in uh, detail here in just a few minutes. But those are the easiest ways. So, so you'll have up to one year, um, again, to uh, from the date that the VA receives your intent to file to submit a formal claim. Um, this process allows the VA uh, to award that backdated benefits, like I was saying earlier, from the date of your diagnosis or treatment. Um, what's also important uh, about the intent to file is you can only submit one intent to file at a time. Um, after you submit a completed claim, your intent to file will no longer be active. So once you go through that process and go back to va.gov and put in the information for the claim and hit that submit button, um, that's when your intent to file will no longer be active. And so you can submit another one at that point. Um, and if you expect to file an intent to file for another general benefit, you must submit a new form. Spot on. The, the biggest thing, the, the, the importance of this is it protects your dates for both benefits and then back pay. Uh, so when we look at the intent to file, the intent to file dates, it, it's the effective dates for your claim. And, and some areas where uh, things can get skewed is, is in terms specifically on, on back pay. Uh, so the way the, the back pay works is they will compensate you on, on the first full the first day of, of the full month following your intent to file. So for those of you that don't have an active intent to file for your claim today, throw it in there because July 1, everything's gonna roll into to August 1. Um, so everything that you have today and tomorrow will roll into uh, in, into July 1st and give you that back day or that, that back pay up to the compensation date. Uh, however, you're, you're at your effective date for your claim will be June 30th for, for today, but back pay will work the first of the month. 
And then, so so going into to the other uh, piece of it is is also the the effective time for for you to gather evidence. So as Natalie had mentioned, you've got 364 days to to gather evidence for your claim. So for those of you that have already submitted your claim and you're just waiting on a claim to go through, please go in today and do a new intent to file. After you submit your claim, you can go right back in and do another intent to file and it will hold your effective date for both benefits and compensation. So it's critical that you do so, otherwise you're just losing out on, on free compensation and added benefits depending on uh, what percentage you're at. Um, so, so rolling in, I'm going to share my screen here in just a second. We're going to do a quick walk, walk through on va.gov. So those of you that have a computer, maybe dual screens, it'd be a good time to, to pull it out. Um, and I'll, I'll walk through it with you. All right. So we're going to start on va.gov. The first step is logging in. And for those of you that are not logged in, this will be a blue icon, but it'll be right up here. Um, so log in, put your credentials in. There's three different sign-in options for you to choose from. Uh, once you're good to go, this homepage will, will show up. It's a classic quad chart. Under disability, you will see file a claim for compensation. So this is step one. This is where we're going to begin. We are going to scroll down to just about the, the middle of your screen or middle of the page, excuse me. And middle of the screen, you're going to see let's get started. Note, for those of you that are on active duty, as long as you're within 179 days of discharge, you can also do your intent to file. Uh, if you're 180 days or more, you're going to need to to wait at least at least a day. Filing for a file a disability claim online, and then start the disability compensation application. And you have an intent to file. So I, I had one that was pre-existing, um, but this would this is where your intent to file would say, thank you for submitting your intent to file. And this is where you begin your actual compensation process. Uh, so when you're going through and doing your claim, everything else shows up here, but that's a simple way to do it. Otherwise, I, I advise for those of you that are looking for convenience, uh, calling the, the VA at 1-800-827-1000. It's, it's a great way to initiate that process. Very, very effective uh, and, and convenient. So with that, we're going to roll into, into Q&A time. Uh, please hit us with any questions you have. I, I asked that beginning, if we can start off with anything pertaining to intent to file, and then we'll take a stab at anything else you got. All right. So Leo asked, how many intent to files can be done? Uh, so at one time, you can have one intent to file. And, and the intent to file is for either an increase for the, the, that you're looking to file for, so you're building medical evidence, or for a new claim. So for your supplementals uh, or higher level reviews, those you, you, you do not need an intent to file for those. Um, however, for new claims and increases, that's the purpose. And you can have one going at one point in time after a claim has been submitted. Right. So to uh, expand on that, um, you know, we have another another Facebook user that says, you know, always have an intent to file in the system. As soon as you file a claim, do a new one the next day. Um, basically, once you put in that claim, again, um, you can go and put another intent to file in. How long can you wait? My intent to file was May 2020 and claims CMP done waiting on Raider. So you can submit your intent to file immediately after you click submit for your application. Um, and and the, the intent to file, uh, 
kind of as we had mentioned earlier, it, it's good for 364 days. So at the 365th day, it's going to roll over and you have to do a new intent to file. Um, but if you don't, if you do not have one right now, I, I advise going in through one of the three methods, either mailing it, calling, or doing it manually and doing your intent to file today. You're, you're only losing out if you don't. So if you're waiting on your CMP reader, um, that means that you've already put in your claim. Um, so you, this process can last out longer than a year, but it's just you have a year to submit your claim. So your claim's already in. So now there's no, really no answer for how long you can wait because you just have to wait for that CMP rater to give you the information and send you that decision letter. Okay, yeah, so so Richard, you, you asked, I've got a CNP for secondary sleep apnea and it's virtual, what should I expect? Uh, so it, what I would say is, First, look at the disability benefits questionnaire uh, so you're aware of the framework for your examination. So the biggest thing, and, and there's some dependency here, uh, depending on what information your provider has going into it. So you're going to want to make sure you've got an active diagnosis for the condition. Otherwise, it's going to be the first question they're going to ask is, you know, what are you formally diagnosed with sleep apnea is going to be step one. And, and that could already be providing the information that they have. But uh, step one is a diagnosis. And then two, it's the history of the nexus. So how how is it service connected? Uh, and, and we got to build in that framework. So if it's secondary and you're tying it into PTSD, depression, tinnitus, um, you, you got to develop that that framework and that history. Uh, and then the last part is formally assessing it. So look, taking a look at your sleep study. Uh, seeing how, how bad it is, um, and then seeing whether you're prescribed a CPAP or not, and some of the readings potentially from, from the CPAP if you have it. So I filed an intent in October 2019. Um, in April of this year, 2021, okay, um, I received 90%, but have been told I couldn't receive the payback because I was receiving retired pay at the same time. I was told I needed to file a crackdown form with DFAS. Yeah, so so what I think this is addressing um, is the intent to file, right? It, it, I just want to make sure I understood it correctly, because um, for for the compensation piece uh, between DFAS and retired pay, that's that's its own separate entity. But in terms of the intent to file, if you're looking to go to 100 percent, and you had you had one that that existed in 2019, you're going to want to file a new one, uh, just so you can develop whatever claim you currently are looking to uh, or, or whatever di diagnosis and disability you're looking to currently service connect and build up that evidence and paperwork so you can get that submitted and then have the back pay uh, effective to, to today. Yeah, so Lucinda asked, is there a time limit to find an old intent to file? Uh, you've got 364 days uh, from, from the date of your intent to file to get your claim submitted. Otherwise, it, it nixes out the 365th day and you've got to do a whole new one. Yeah, so taking a quick stab at this one, I, I filed an intent to file back in September of 2019 as a primary condition and then filed in September as, as 2020 as a secondary condition. When my increase goes to the back pay of 2020, how will I get? So this is where the intent to file doesn't apply because this would either be a higher level review or, or likely if you're submitting new evidence as a secondary, uh, then it's going to be a supplemental claim. And so it could potentially be backdated uh, based on the, the date of the evidence uh, that was provided. So if you found new things from in-service um, that you're connecting it to, they could keep the original date. Otherwise, if they go based on the date of new evidence, then it would be dated on the earliest evidence provided uh, that, that you had the diagnosis. And then if your date's wrong as well, because I, I think the last part is how can I get the, the dates changed? Um, 
so a couple different ways to go about getting dates corrected. Uh, the the easiest and most efficient way is to just call the one eight hundred number eight two seven one thousand, and they can they can manually adjust your dates. Otherwise, you can formally appeal your date and have your date corrected. Uh, so those are those are the two easiest options. How many conditions can I claim on an intent to file? Um, well, their intent to file is literally just putting in that intent um, and letting the VA know that you plan to apply for compensation, whether it's an increase or a new uh, condition um, when you put in that claim. So you're not really putting any, any conditions in. Um, but when you do file for your claim, you can uh, put as many conditions in there that you'd like to see, you know, looked at. However, we don't suggest that here at VA Claims Insider. Um, we, we suggest you do one thing at a time. Go for one condition at a time. Yeah, and, and to caveat my battle buddy here, um, so on on the, what is the limit, right? What is the absolute maximum extent of what I can file for? It's literally everything on the 38 CFR. Uh, that those that's what you can formally rate against so that and you can put everything in file for everything under the sun uh, we tend to call that the, the spray and pray method um, but as as natalie mentioned it, it's best to, to file effective claims um, and, and try to keep them as, as small and concise and you know bulletproof as, as you can uh, you, you don't want to file and, and kind of grasp at straws you want to submit quality claims that are well supported fully developed have nexus letters if at all possible diagnoses and either in-service uh, records to, to document a primary nexus or you've got the, the medical evidence to support the secondary. Yeah, so how long does it take to, to get a status? Um, so there's a lot of uh, dependency here. Uh, so when we're looking at, at submitting, uh, when you submit everything and, and you, you're submitting a, a solid claim with packed with evidence, claims will roll through relatively quickly, but uh, it, especially if you're filing a lot of claims, um, or you've been out of service for a while, they, they can take a minute to request different records that may not be provided. So that's usually the longest wait. Um, and then after that, it, even if you attend CNP exams and they have to start requesting additional evidence or additional documentation, uh, either from in-service or from the National Archives uh, there, there's, or, or from the VA itself, uh, from just different providers, contractors, et cetera, uh, that's where that timeline can come in and, and where it can vary. But if you're submitting a kind of a, a full foolproof claim that's well documented, well submitted, it's going to go through much much quicker because everything is there. They've got everything they need to make a decision. Um, but that's that's where the timeline can vary. I hope that answered the question. So you, I've been told that I need another CMP exam scheduled. How do I get them scheduled at ASAP? Um, easiest and quickest way is to call that 1-800-827-1000 number. Um, reach out to them and they will be able to get you in touch with uh, the provider, whether it's LHI, um, VES. Yeah, so LHI, VES, and QTC, and as Natalie mentioned, so you two steps to 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 move the process along as best you can, uh, and most effectively, uh, call the one eight hundred eight two seven one thousand. Find out where it's at. Speak with the claims agent. Find out who has it. It can be VA internal. It could be through one of the contractors, such as LHI, VES, QTC. And then once you know where it's at, then you you either call that facility or you call that contractor. Uh, for instance, if VES is doing your claim. Uh, call VES, find out 
uh, where it's at, make sure they have your availability because that's the first step is either they will contact you to get your availability or you provide to them and then uh, book with them to, to get the soonest available date. Uh, and they can either be, depending on the condition, virtual, uh, which we're, we're still seeing or, or in person. And that's going to dictate some of the timeline there. But calling them and making yourself a priority, kind of being the squeaky wheel, it, you're going to get the oil. Yeah, so sleep apnea claims secondary to depression. You've been diagnosed with sleep apnea for eight years or so. Do I need a new diagnosis? So the answer to this, is, in terms of the actual diagnosis itself, no. But for, for sleep apnea claims, it, it's critical that you've got a sleep study within two years of, of filing your claim. You want to make sure it's current and accurate. So that, that's the big thing uh, to, to establish your rating criteria is submitting uh, uh, a, a current sleep study. That, that would be step one. And then step two is is the uh, the nexus, so to speak, making sure your nexus is well supported. Uh, so if you're claiming it as secondary to depression, you've got the backing of a medical provider and medical evidence to support how your depression has caused your your sleep apnea. and and you're gonna you're gonna be great. Um, so it, it, it usually takes uh, about a week or two. So I'm surprised that you you wouldn't have a decision by now. Um, but in, in terms of once it goes into the pre preparation for a decision, uh, this is just the, the final quality assurance process going through. So they, they've done your letter. Um, they may have even mailed your letter, um, depending on, on kind of how recently you've checked it. But I would, I would be checking e-benefits every couple of days. And that's, for, that's the first place where you will see your rating and you'll also see whether it's service connected or not. Um, but I would be anticipating a result within the next week or two at the latest. Yeah, David, so if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, you, you, are, are you looking to file an increase on your ear? If your service connected in, in your ears for hearing loss and it could be at 0%, 0% is still a good thing. You're already service connected. Uh, so if you believe that your hearing loss is worse than what you're currently rated as, and this is where I, I would also take a look in the 38 CFR, uh, just to see for the hearing loss where where you believe you're you're gauged, um, but if you're adamant that you're undercompensated, definitely file an increase on on your ear, and it's as simple as going into va.gov, filling out that claim process, uh, and and uh, checking the block for one of my conditions have gotten worse, and then checking the block for the increase in your right ear. It, it takes just a couple of minutes. What is the phone number to call to check on claim when I need an examination? Um, that's the 1-800-827-1000, um, that's the VA hotline. Yeah, Greg, so you'll see in the evidence gathering and review phase on, on VA.gov, you'll see multiple requests for information. And what uh, what I would advise is is not to get too tripped up on, on what those mean, because those could be inner office uh, requests for information, like the, the Veteran Business Administration and the Medical Administration, talking to each other for, for information. It could be where uh, they're requesting information from the National Archives or from one of your service components, um, just depending on where you're at, what you did. Um, but the, the request for information, unless they've reached out to you directly and they, you've received a, a letter from the VA that's requesting anything specific, or they've called you to, to request something like maybe your D214 or information they may be missing, don't get tripped up and don't worry about it. Uh, it's just part of the part of the process. They're they're making sure that they have all of your service documentation to set up your uh, your examination if they have not done so already. Yeah, Derek. So so you're saying you just got tested or examined for for a condition, and now the VA is re-examining you. 
Um, and, and, and there's some dependency. So if it's through the VA internal, it's because they, they didn't receive like the, the, the disability benefits questionnaire that was completed that gets juxtaposed against the 38 CFR wasn't accurate or, or they still they still had missing information. And that was likely the case if you use one of the contractors as well. So all of like LHI, QTC, VES, they all have a quality assurance process they go through uh, before it goes to the VA. Um, so despite the organization that you may have received a examination from, uh, this is really to, uh, to your betterment because they're, they're looking to make sure you're, they're submitting a complete product to the VA uh, that's, that's thorough and accurate. What about a case where a, a doctor botches a, a simple procedure uh, in which causes an obstructed airway? I had a sleep study a year ago and, and the VA provided a CPAP. Is that something I can file a claim for? Uh, yes, yes. So, so one of the, the nexus criterions is if an uh, uh, incorrect procedure is done through the VA, you can then, you can then file a, a claim based on uh, something that the, the VA has caused. Uh, but it, you can also do it tying to, to whatever service information you have as well. Uh, so it, it, especially when it comes down to, because uh, it looks like this will be a sleep apnea claim. Uh, sleep apnea is a kind of a nuanced claim. It's it's one of those flavor of the months where it's getting a lot of scrutiny uh, currently from the VA, uh, just based on uh, if you were diagnosed in service or not. Um, and then even the, the secondary options are, are kind of being looked at a little more critically than they have in, in the past. And so it's, uh, it's critical that, that nexus be established. And so as long as everything is documented and you've got the rationale and, and you feel you're under, you're not getting the rating that you deserve for it, definitely file and, and provide any documentation that you have to support your argument. Um, but developing that nexus is going to be the most critical step to ultimately getting a, a service connected claim and being compensated for it. Yeah, so so Tommy here, I'm 60% for depression, anxiety. I since had a stroke and sleep apnea and vertigo. I don't know which to file for. I filed an intent in January. Uh, so the, the biggest thing, Tommy, is connecting it to things that you may already have that are service connected. And what I'll say is that at VA Claims Insider here, you, you've got a bunch of coaches. Uh, if you're looking for advice, um, you know, connecting with one of the coaches here, we'll, we'll advise you accordingly based on what, you, what else you have that may be connected. If you have tinnitus potentially, uh, connecting the tinnitus to vertigo would, might be a, a good option. Um, same thing with the, with the sleep apnea. Um, we're, we're gonna wanna develop that, uh, the nexus, you know, how, how either the military created the problem or they aggravated uh, a condition. Uh, it needs to be well-established and that's through, you know, either a, a primary means something happened in service, a secondary means where a condition causes another condition, or there was a presumptive list of, of set conditions based on being either stationed in a certain place or, or deployed uh, to, to a certain location. But I, to fully answer your question, um, I would file for uh, whatever you, you, you can justify. Um, if these conditions are impacting your everyday life, definitely file for anything that uh, that you can that you can justify and that's well well documented. Okay, does the nexus need to be written by a doctor or can it be an obvious connection? I can speak personally. I've had some where I did not need to have an actual nexus written because there was an obvious connection. I had plenty of evidence uh, within my medical records and my time within the VA that it made that process fairly easy. But if you don't really have much um, to connect your in time um, your your uh, your event that 
that occurred while you were in service uh, to your diagnosis, then you absolutely do need that nexus letter and it does need to be written by a doctor. And to, to caveat on that as well, so the, the, the doctor portion of that um, is, is loosely interpreted by, by the VA. Um, so they can be done by physician assistants, they can be done by nurse practitioners as well, um, psychiatrists, et cetera, as long as they've got a valid medical license. Uh, and this goes in, in terms of examinations as well. So when you go in for your CMP exam, it's not always the case where you're examined by a, a doctor per se. Uh, it's a medical professional of some kind, um, but just just be aware of that. That that nuance doesn't always have to exist. So if you if you've been working closely with a nurse practitioner, they understand what's going on. They're willing to write a letter on your behalf. That will serve as a nexus. That that that'll be sufficient. Yeah. So so Lucas is asking how difficult is it to get a nexus for sleep apnea? Um, the the biggest thing is that you have the condition. That that's step one. Uh, so to, to connecting anything, you need to have an active uh, condition or diagnosis of some kind. Uh, so as long as you've got a sleep study and you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, you just need a, 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 some form of nexus to connect it to your service. And it, it's, it's not difficult based on, uh, it, there's dependency based on what conditions you have otherwise. So if you were deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq multiple times, you're exposed to burn pits, you've got, you're on the burn pit registry. Um, you're getting a nexus for that is going to be really easy. Same thing with if you like a, um, a question we received earlier is I have depression. Um, as long as your depression is well documented and it's connected to your military service and it's caused you to gain weight and now you've, you've developed this sleep apnea condition later in life that would, and you've got a doctor that's willing to, to write it, uh, then absolutely. And then we also partner here with a company called Telemedica. And, and so Telemedica, that, that's really all they do is, is write Nexus letters and, and diagnose uh, as necessary. But the, the two things you need to have is, is going to be a, a diagnosis to prove you currently have the condition and then some way of connecting it, some, some form of Nexus. So, so John's saying that, uh, I, I guess, reinterpreting this, um, he had a bad CNP exam. Uh, which is where he was saying things that were not documented by the examiner um, that ultimately went went on the DBQ up to the rater. And so what I would say in this case is after the fact, and if nothing was was documented during the time, you, you can do a, a higher level review, having someone take a look at it. Um, but my, my advice in, the, in this particular situation that you're in would be to get new medical evidence uh, and, and then resubmit a supplemental claim. Uh, and, and for all veterans that may, that may have this, you know, when recognizing what is a bad CMP exam, uh, when, when, when you're in that situation and, and you, you may be talking to a provider and they may not be writing things down or they may not be act, they're not actively listening to you, um, definitely report that. that. That's a sign of a bad CMP exam, and that allows you to, in, in, in this case, so where you would find out after the fact that you were saying things that were not done, you then have grounds to request a new examination. But in this case, if, if there was no documentation that went in, if we didn't make a call to the VA or write a memorandum for record stating, this is what I saw at the time of my examination, it, it's very difficult to retro retroactively go back and say these things happened. And you can call that in again at that 1-800-827-1000 number, um, as well as calling those providers, whether it's uh, QTC, VES, or LHS um, directly and letting them know. 
Yeah, so Don, to tackle your question, um, you, you had a CMP exam for anxiety and it took more than an hour. Is it a good sign that the results will be favorable? What, what, what possible percentage am I looking at? Um, there, there is a lot of dependency here, um, just based on, 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 especially when it comes down to mental health. Mental health is all about the symptoms. Um, so it, it's great that your exam went an hour. It seems like it was fairly detailed, um, but you still, it, it's gonna be dependent on the, the diagnosis going in. So if you walked in with a diagnosis for anxiety and you, or you had it in your uh, medical treatment records from, from in-service, that'll suffice, that's good, that's, that's step one. And then step two is, is the nexus. So how is it connected to your military service? And so being able to, to, to articulate that, talk about it, develop that clear nexus of how the military either created or aggravated it. And there's also a question in there too about family history. And then that's what trips up a lot of veterans. So if you have a condition that predates your, your military history, uh, like maybe bipolar or maybe developed schizophrenia that has some genetic ties, um, then it, it can be difficult to uh, to establish that clear nexus. And so sometimes a service connection may not be granted. Um, so it, it's critical that a, a clear nexus was established. And then the, the last thing when it comes down to the rating, right, the, the results that I'm walking away with, that's purely based on the symptoms. Um, so if you have depression, anxiety, insomnia, uh, if you've had suicidal ideations, all of those have different rating criterion um, that, that are located in the 38 CFR. And I would say, you know, you know where you're at. So if you're curious of what, what, what type of rating would I walk away with, glance, take a glance at the 38 CFR to see what ratings constitute what level. And that'll give you your best answer. Yeah, Rick. So, so you, you just had a CMP and, and you're waiting on the results. Um, the, the results can vary. And, and, and the reason that is, is it, especially if it went through one of the contractors, because the, the VA itself, so if you were examined at a VA facility, the quality assurance, it goes right to the rater. So the, the exam that's done goes right to the rater. It's usually much quicker. But when it goes through one of the, the contracted agencies, such as VES, LHI, QTC, they all have a quality assurance process. And that's where claims usually get held up. Um, and that's also where you can find out that you have to go through another examination because something wasn't done in your original exam. So there, there is a, a lot of nuance here to, to, to that. But the, 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 I would anticipate you usually have an exam within 30 days or you usually have a rating within 30 days of going to your CMP exam. But where the weight is will be inside of that quality assurance process. And if you want to get better fidelity on, on where specifically it's at, call the company that, that you went to. So if it was at LHI, call them up, find out where specifically it's at in their process. And then from there, it goes to the VA. Once it actually hits the Raiders desk, it, things move quick. The, the VA itself usually isn't sitting on information, but it, depending on where it's at with what contract is going to dictate the timeline. I guess my first question would be, when was your CMP? Because this is, uh, if they use the goniometer or they did not use the goniometer, then that would be considered a bad CMP exam. They were not using the tools that they were supposed to, and you would want to report that. But uh, basically going back to what Coach Sean said earlier, um, if you've already received your decision uh, for that, or uh, then you can go back and go for a high level review, or you can go and, um, well, actually go for a high level review. Uh, they didn't use the tools that they were supposed to, so that's a, a mistake on the VA's part.
Yeah. And, and when that option fails, I would definitely say to go through and, and get medical documentation. Uh, so whether you're seeing a chiropractor, whether you're seeing a, uh, orthopedic specialist, whoever you're seeing for your back, get new relevant medical information to depict how it's gotten worse and file a supplemental um, that you've also got that in your back pocket. And then you can make sure it's done right this time. And if you haven't received your decision yet, um, call the number, call the number and let them know that uh, the CMP exam didn't go the way that you, that it, it needed to go. So when you're filing a claim for presumptive conditions, uh, in this case, irritable bowel syndrome, is a nexus letter really necessary when you have all the other necessary medical evidence? And the answer to this is no. So it, if you have evidence either from in-service, you've got medical studies, you have, you, you have that clear line to connect the presumptive condition to an active diagnosis that you have, it's not necessary. Uh, but I, I say that with a caveat that a nexus letter is always helpful. If you're working with a physician, you're working with a uh, family practice doc and a, a medical professional of any kind, ask them the question if they will write a nexus letter on your behalf. You know, the, the letter doesn't need to state a whole lot. It just needs to state that you, this is your diagnosis. This is the rationale why, you know, whether it's presumptive, you know, here's the list. Um, and then in their medical opinion, the condition is or is not at least as likely service-connected. They don't have to say whether it is or it isn't, just it's at least as likely as not service-connected. Uh, very simple, but if you're to submit the best possible product and, and kind of give them a, a foolproof claim, make sure you go with the Nexus letter. But is it required? No. Yeah, so Frank is asking, how do you report a CMP exam? Uh, so a couple different ways. The easiest way, call the VA. Uh, I know we keep mentioning, we may sound like we keep beating the same drum, but that's because it's important. And, and the claims professionals who, who will ultimately talk to you on the phone will be able to annotate that in your, in your file. In addition, you can also write a memorandum for record that will go into your claims file that will be, it, especially if you've not received your decision letter yet, so this is prior to receiving a decision, it will still be considered as part of the, the evidence. Um, and it will also give you a grounds to appeal it once it goes through. So this is, uh, it's a good time. If you've not received a decision letter, it's still pending uh, in, in va.gov. Go in, I, I recommend doing va.gov specifically, going in, clicking under files and uploading your memorandum for record right into your claims file. What is the best way to, to file if I'm 100% uh, for PTSD slash uh, somatic symptom disorder with a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea and diabetes? Is it okay to file claims after 100% PNT? Um, yes, but I, I say that with a caveat because right now your conditions are likely considered static. So if, if you're currently permanent and totally disabled, your conditions are static. And when you when you file a new claim, you risk the uh, you risk having them turn chronic again, meaning they're prone to be reevaluated because your conditions may potentially have gotten worse. Um, so you, you potentially could look at losing that permanent and total status during it. So I, I would be critical in terms of, especially if, if one is dependent on one another. Um, so in this, if you're, if you're filing a new claim under it, but the, the other thing too is, uh, I, I would assume you're going for one of the special monthly compensation codes, uh, which, which are good things to file for. Um, but I would definitely, especially if you're in uh, elite member here at VACI, get with a coach and, and get with or consult a professional of, of some kind. So you make sure you're getting some advice going in because there, there is risk that you would assume uh, by, by filing this claim. And so it's going to be very, very critical that you're submitting a, a Loctite argument and, and you know what you're going after. 
All right. So Jenny's asking if I need to increase my PTSD rating, how do I start? I, I did the intent to file. All right. So you're just going to continue on the application process. So I, and, and I'm presuming that you've done this online. So the easiest way to do is go into va.gov, file a claim for compensation, and then kind of go through as, as, as we walk through the process, um, just continue on with the application uh, where we're, it's going to direct the path of your application is based on the block you check for either new claim or filing for a condition that's gotten worse. In the case of an increase, you want to make sure only the block is checked for filing a condition that's gotten worse. And then you'll see your uh, rated conditions. You just want to check off on, on the right condition. So in your case, it'd be PTSD. And then just continue on with the application. Um, you're not going to, it's helpful if you can provide new medical evidence but it's not, it's not required. So you don't need to, to throw in anything else. You just need to finish the application and submit. But I, I say that with a caveat, if you're submitting the best possible product, you're submitting a product that has new relevant medical information to, to uh, justify your increase, if you have it. Okay, so we are going to um, wrap it up. For any questions that haven't been answered, um, we will, we're taking note of that and we'll get back to you um, to, to answer those. But we do appreciate everyone coming out today for our Facebook Live on the intent to file. We love you guys. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If you have any questions, please type them in the chat. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to you as soon as we can.